I am bringing you today a guy that I have known for a long time. In fact, a lot longer than I thought. We just uh, were discussing that off air. And uh, he he's not only a friend, but he is a guy who is incredibly knowledgeable about the law enforcement profession. Probably one of the most knowledgeable people I know about this profession uh, without actually having uh, pushed a patrol car around and investigated homicides and, and things like that. And he just has a unique perspective on the profession of policing. Doug Wiley, welcome to the show. Bessie, thank you for having me here. And it's a pleasure to see you, my friend. Uh, as just a tiny bit of background, explain to people how you became to be affiliated, so closely affiliated, because everybody knows who Doug Wiley is, um, with American law enforcement. Uh, it's, it's a long story made short insofar as around 15 years ago, almost exactly 15 years ago, um, my then wife uh, had a friend who was working at a company called Praetorian, and you were a writer at Praetorian uh, for policeone.com. And this person emailed my wife saying, do you know anybody who would be suitable for a, a website focused on policing? And she forwarded it to me and she, she said, do you know anybody? And I said, uh, me? <laughs> so because my dad, when I was growing up, my dad's best friend was a police officer. I've been around people in and around the services, the military armed forces. And I one of my hangouts as a kid was at the fire station. Uh, I've been friends with cops as I've come up through the years. So I and I lived in San Francisco. And of course, during my time in San Francisco and, and during their search for someone who could write about and be pro-cop and not just pro-cop, but do it from a, a journalistic perspective and do the investigative work that I'd done earlier in my career um, as a writer, as a w editor and what have you, who could be, who could fit with cops and, and hang with cops. And they had a hard time filling that position. And I was suitable to it. And that was that was 15 years ago, almost exactly to the day. And it's so extraordinary because you immersed yourself in the culture of yeah. law enforcement um, without being a wannabe. Um, right. talk, talk about those early days of learning about American law enforcement in the in the 2000s. So earlier, so this is 2008. Um, and very early in my experience, first thing I, I talked with you and I talked with a couple of other folks before even joining police one. Now, of course, I'm no longer with police one. We can get into that, uh, later. Um, I came to know, I mean, I knew inherently that I don't know stuff. And one of the reasons that I'm, I think good at journalism and good at writing is that I'm inherently curious and I want to know things that I don't know. And I'm very open to saying, teach me stuff. I'm the new guy. I don't know anything. So I found that it was well received by cops, especially who are trainers, who especially who are have a penchant toward, you know, the SRO role or, or you know, or, or the FTO role or even just someone who's in mid command staff who is interested in nurturing younger people. And my natural curiosity and my willingness to say, I don't know, and you help me, please gave them the permission or me the permission essentially to be a knucklehead and them the permission to say, we're going to take you under our wing. We're going to teach you a little bit. Um, and I think that that will coming into it from an other standpoint saying essentially like, I know all this other stuff and you don't know what I know would have immediately shut doors. Right now, of course, did I know stuff about other industries, you know, 
the radio and record industry, for example. Yeah, I know a lot of that about that stuff, but it's irrelevant to what I was trying to learn then. And I also have throughout the course of my journalism career, oddly enough, one of my favorite writers when I was a kid was Hunter S. Thompson and the gonzo journalism school of doing this. Get yourself involved. Go to the train. So that's what I did. One of the first weeks that I was there, I went to a canine training and I had the dog bite suit on like a complete novice. Um, I grew up around firearms, so I know little about guns and I was well accepted when I went to the square range. Now, training with a bunch of cops and me being a civilian, I wasn't as good a shooter as almost all of them. So if I was in the 10 percentile or 20 percentile and there were a couple of cops who were not as good as me, I was stoked. So it was really a matter of just being open to telling people, I want to learn from you. Do you remember your first um, National Police Week? Vividly. And it, it's, it, don't make me cry. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was there from the day before the uh, the bike tour arrived uh, until the day after the event uh, wrapped. I was the entire the entire week and it was it was rough. In fact, I had lived in D.C. for five years, so I knew some of the bars where some of that stuff wound up. Um, in fact, I was a bouncer at one of the Irish bars years and years ago. Um, so I had seen Police Week come through, but I had never seen it from being basically behind the wire, you know. And it was it was crazy being part of that, because by the time I went to Police Week, I had I had a year or two, I think, under my belt at Police One. And I'd gone to all these trainings and I had kind of become a little bit sheep dipped in the culture so that by the time that the bagpipes were playing at various places, I kind of knew what was what a little bit, but it was not prepared for how the, the sheer gravity and mass of that event. It is. It's it's an it's still one of the most extraordinary events that that anybody in law enforcement can attend, but really anybody in the country to see. Um what happens when we honor and mourn our fallen it's extraordinary isn't it it's 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 incredible now i had been to one maybe two police funerals just an individual officer and having seen that from the perspective again of a civilian but seeing people from all over the country fly in for one person's burial the service and and the support for the people who are on that department i mean it's incredible then you see them coming from everywhere for police week um so it it, it it you begin to get a real sense of the togetherness the family that brotherhood sisterhood thing when you go to your first police funeral which i'll never forget that and then of course I've, the most recent one i've gone to thankfully it's been a while but then you know it just hasn't been someone local to my area that's been been murdered or, or passed away in the line of duty but the natalie corona um funeral down in davis you know you see people come in from all over wearing the uniform but you also see people like myself in civilian clothes standing there on the bridges and the overpasses of the freeway carrying blue line flags and american flags and handmade signs that say we love you um so you do see at times of great um emotional stress and loss and mourning you do see the civilians come out and it, unfortunately, it takes a tragedy sometimes for that to happen. So you have been uh, doing this all throughout what we call the war on cops. The since the um, death of Michael Ferguson, a uh, young man. Uh, I'm sorry, Michael Brown, 
in Ferguson, Missouri, a young man who uh, committed a strong arm robbery and then tried to disarm a police officer and was shot and killed by that police officer. Um, the police officer did nothing wrong. He has been uh, cleared multiple times by uh, multiple organizations, including the Department of Justice. Um, but that the riots that followed and the lies and the vilification of the profession that followed that, you were able to watch that as someone um, who, you know, was a journalist and, uh, you know, pro-police, yes, but also just as an American and, you know, explain that how what, and what you've seen since 2014 um, going forward. Yeah, from from the perspective of now, again, I do have a slight, not slightly, a very pro-police bias. It's just a fact. But even from an objective standpoint, as a as a true journalist, as a person who wants to find out facts and report them as such and not color them with my own opinion. Now, I can write the opinion column all day long, but I also am pretty good at writing just the facts. And it frustrated me terribly to find that even as that hands up don't shoot narrative began to completely fall apart it just collapsed like a house of cards that you had major media organizations continuing to drill home that lie I mean, it was absolute falsehood didn't happen completely you know fantasy and so it was very frustrating for me as a true journalist to to look at that and go wait a second how can you how can you go to sleep at night calling yourself a professional journalist and know that what you've just put out there isn't factually correct. So that was frustrating. Then it was also frustrating again, as a pro police person to see how the, the, the general public got sucked into this false narrative. The political elites got sucked into the, or were pushing in many cases, this false narrative to their own benefit, just because they wanted to get reelected or they wanted to get another microphone in their face. And all of that, became frustrating from a more emotional standpoint, not as a, a subjective detached standpoint. So both of those things. And then when, you know, when the officer was properly exonerated of all wrongdoing, um, you know, we had, who had read the four autopsy reports, who had read the, all the, anyone who's really read the stuff knew what was coming. Mm -hmm. So when that no writ came down, it's funny, I was already on vacation. I was in Florida at the time on that Monday night, um, watching Monday Night Football. And my then boss calls me on the phone. I had already written the article that why why he wasn't indicted. It was already in the content management system. It was there, been there for weeks. And he calls me up and he says, you know, is, is there anything in there that's no that's not right? That Because we're going to run it. It just happened. And I'm sitting there going, all right, well, no, it's fine. Exactly as it's written is perfect. And I'm going back to Monday Night Football, hang up the phone. That's how old I am. I'm hanging up the phone. <laughs> uh, and and it blew up the Internet. It, it actually it actually crashed the police one website because so many people were wondering why he wasn't indicted. And it was right. because he didn't do anything wrong. But the people began to learn or were uh, brainwashed into thinking that he was the one in the wrong when it was, in fact, the the assailant. The young man who had attacked the officer, who unfortunately he caused his own death by virtue of his own actions. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I'll, I'll never, I, I still have that article. I literally printed it out. 
And, uh, and I refer to it on occasion, you know, and you're, you're a guy that uh, every once in a while you do break the internet. That was, that was one time. Another time was that, that, and you know, and you're a shooter, you enjoy shooting sports. Um, you decided to do a survey of, uh, boots on the ground cops and ask them what they think about armed citizens. Talk about that. Yeah, so I'd love to take credit for it being only my idea. That was an organizational idea. Um, it wasn't just me, but I was, I, because I was a person in that office, in the San Francisco office, I think I was the only one who had ever fired a gun in that office. And I was certainly the only one who owned guns. Um, so I had some familiarity, of course. And I also had some sense of, I didn't know exactly what the results would be. But I had a feeling they were going to be different from what the expectations in the mainstream media would be, because many people in police leadership positions, they're essentially told you have to be kind of anti-gun. You have to support these um, gun control laws and such. And I knew that the folks, probably the general line officers, men and women who are actually out there enforcing laws, probably weren't going to have that same response. And what we needed to do was actually get to the people who read police one. And generally speaking, that's line officers. I mean, right. there's some command staff that do, but it's really targeted towards or was when I worked there. Um, honestly, it's been five years, so I really don't, I can't speak for them now. But um, so it was a curiosity uh, on the part of the rest of the team. But I was also kind of like, I'm really going to enjoy publicizing these results because it's going to run contrary to what the mainstream media narrative is about law enforcement's opinion of gun ownership, gun rights, and, 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 and the exactly. legal use of in your defense. Yeah. And I, I want to point out to people, you know, understand that what you to this day, you usually hear in the media is that law enforcement officials want more gun control. Those are law enforcement, quote unquote, leaders, mostly urban police chiefs who yeah. mostly work for um, not to get political, but far left um, city councils, mayors, things like that, who have uh, an anti-Second Amendment agenda. There's no other way to say it, right? It's just the truth. I mean, you can't mince those words. If you were, it, it would be it would be doing everybody a disservice. Yeah. Them, in, them included. Yeah, absolutely. So talk about the survey results and how you broke the Internet with that. Well, and that, it was, again, a little bit to me unsurprising in that Generally speaking, and we broke it out by uh, rank and number of years and a few other little ways in which you can slice the, the data. But the data, in sum, essentially said that the overwhelming majority of law enforcement officers sworn in the United States that were surveyed, um, now it was an unscientific survey, it was members of Police One. So this isn't just everybody reading Police One, it's people who are involved that have actually said, we want to have email from you, things of mm. that nature. So it's a self-selecting group. Again, I want to say it's, it was unscientific, but it was instructive and it was informative in that the overwhelming majority said, we support people who own legally firearms and responsibly firearms who are interested in shooting sports. We, we are supportive of people who defend themselves in the event that they are attacked by an armed assailant. And then that wasn't particularly surprising to me, but it surprised a lot of people around me. Um, that cops would say, basically, for for lack of a better way of putting it, good for you. You helped yourself before we got there. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, absolutely. The, I mean, count, the cops are only minutes away. And the cops know that. 
right? They know the response time, even on a code three, is probably two to three or four minutes. In a gunfight, four minutes is forever. Right, it's, absolutely. It's over in seconds. So, and so they know from the experience of having to roll up on a scene where you've got, unfortunately, murdered people who were defenseless because their political, even the people that they voted for, mm-hmm. like take Chicago or take Philadelphia or take Baltimore, a lot of New York City, a lot of the, San Francisco, all these places that have strict anti-gun laws. The people who carry the guns are the bad guys. They couldn't care less about the laws to begin with. They're yeah. out there breaking laws Monday to Friday, twice on Sunday, and Saturday they might take off because of Sabbath. It's, you know, it's it, the people who are law-abiding, law enforcement officers recognize that they should have the ability to defend themselves. Right. Generally speaking, and again, that's from the survey. Yeah, and and I mean, it's it's something that I still I still quote sometimes in interviews and and uh, and you know that's one of the reasons the National Police Association is we have positioned ourselves as the most pro Second Amendment police group in these in this nation because we understand, especially as law enforcement numbers drop, uh, crime goes up, that law-abiding citizens need to be able and have the right to be able to protect themselves, their property, their family, the people they love. And this, and you're absolutely right, Betsy, this also goes to an outcome of the war on cops, mm-hmm. right? Now you have people in the profession who are retiring early, who are lateraling to places where it's, let's say, a better better city where the crime rates are lower and it's less likely you're going to be assaulted by someone who you're going to a DV call on or, you know, where you're leaving, there's an exodus from large agencies, mid-sized agencies, towards smaller agencies and more rural agencies. Then you have people who just don't want to join the profession because they don't want to get right. sued. They don't want to get criminally charged simply for doing their job. Right. Now you have fewer people patrolling the streets and you have an increase in crime. Well, what do you do with the people who just want to live their ordinary life and go to the store or go to their job or go to their kid's daycare or go to their kid's softball game? These people then logically Law-abiding individuals would say, I need to, I must, it's not like I want to, I must defend myself and my family. So I'm going to go, I'm going to get a firearm, I'm going to learn how to responsibly use it, how to responsibly store it, how to responsibly deal with situations and know when to just be the good witness and know when to, I might need to return fire, that kind of thing. So it's law enforcement officers, even back then, and we're talking, I think that was 12 or so, 2012 or so when we did the, the survey, that's before the war on cops happened. Now you've got in the post Ferguson and now post George Floyd and the the riots of the 2020. And I've said this for years, it's going, there's going to be another Rittenhouse. It's going to happen because you've got a, a vacuum. You've got a void into which only the criminals are now going. When the cops leave the, 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 the arena, the arena is filled with criminals and yeah. they're going to continue to victimize people until those victims, potential victims start fighting back. And I think we've seen a couple of events lately that are maybe the distant early warning of that potential trend happening. My hope is that it's not some rampaging crazy person who just goes out and decides they want to be, you know, whatever the fellow's name was from the the 70s movies. Um, But that you are probably going to have incidents, incidents in which a civilian responsible gun owning citizen 
is going to have to solve the problem by themselves because the cops ain't going to be there. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. So I tell you, we have less than two minutes left. And, uh, you know, I, I you now work for Police Magazine, which I got as a rookie cop. It's the longest running uh, police publication. But you've also been tapped as a, an investigative uh, writer for us, the National Police Association, nationalpolice.org, um, for something that we are calling the wall of shame. Can you talk about that for a minute? So this reminds me a little of when you and I worked together uh, back in the day on no parole for cop killers. This essentially is looking at um, people who have bonded out on a major charge. Now, we're not talking minor charges. Someone who has been um, uh, charged with murder, second degree, first degree, uh, manslaughter, things of that nature, and then bonded out and reoffend in some way. And we'll, we'll even include things of like rape or uh, major assault or things of that nature. And they've bonded out because of a couple of different things. One, the judges typically are not reported in the mainstream media. The judges who make these determinations on whether or not there is a million dollars bond or $500,000 bond or no bond, all these no bail, you know, bail reform matters are putting our streets and our citizens at risk because these violent, potentially dangerous criminals um, who have a history of violence. It's not like this is their first rodeo. They're bonding out and they're out there to reoffend and commit crimes and victimize people who, if they were incarcerated pre-trial, that's one victim we could prevent from having that victimization incident to them if that person, even pre-trial, if they're facing a major assault or major charge, that they should not bond out and be free to reoffend and victimize innocent people. I have about 50 more questions for you, so I'm going to have to have you back. But uh, I cannot thank you enough for spending time with us today. And if you would like more information about us, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Ma'am, put the gun down! Put the gun down! Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.